Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Lindsay. I'm Ryan. I'm Jay. Ryan, welcome to the show. For those of you who have been listening to us for a while, we have a new voice. So tell us a little about yourself. So I've had the pleasure of hanging out with you for what is it, four years now? Yeah, something like Close that. Close to that. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay and I perform together um, on stage. We work together and we're like partners in crime, as we lovingly put it. And she was like, hey, you want to join a fun podcast group? And I was like, that sounds awesome. So that's why I'm here. Here we are. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So happy to have you on board, Ryan. Um I don't know if I should apologize to you for the film that is your first one on this podcast, but we'll get to that part later. <laughs> we are reviewing The Talented Mr. Ripley today, folks, starring Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jake Davenport, James Rebhorn, Sergio Rubini, and Philip Baker Hall. So a huge all-star cast directed by Anthony Mingala and based on the novel by Patricia Highsmith, released in 1999 on a $40 million budget. It grossed over $128 million at the box office and garnered five Academy Award nominations, though it did not win any of them. So let's talk about the movie. Jay, what is your background with this movie? I've seen this movie exactly one time before this <laughs> review. I saw it in 1999 in theaters on the recommendation of an ex-girlfriend who was had transitioned to friend at that point um, and loved to read, was a voracious reader, had read the book and said, you need to go see this because it's right up your alley because she knows I like noir thrillers and all that. And I like Matt Damon. I was a big fan of Goodwill Hunting. And I thought, boy, this guy's great. He's really interesting. I'd seen him in like school ties when he was playing like this huge jerk. Uh, and so I, I liked his stuff. And she said, you need to go check this out because I think you'll dig it. And I, it's funny now to look back at it. Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, to my minting young Hollywood, that usually happens in a horror movie, like Scream or some shit like that. <laughs> to get them all in this noir thriller kind of out of the blue is different. And nowadays it'd be something that would happen on like a television show. I would think, I, you know, I don't think we do this in a movie anymore, but I remember watching this and just being struck by it um, in the theater, but I never went back to it. And I, but I remembered it vividly. And so when you brought it up, Lindsay, I was like, you know, it's been a long time since I went down that road. That'll be fun. And I even checked the book out of the library and chewed through that to uh, to get into this one. So, yeah, that's my my background with Talented Mr. Ripley. Only ever seen it once, but it left a strong impression. Awesome. Ryan, how about you? 
Uh, so, well, I've actually only like kind of heard about the talented Mr. Ripley. I knew about the book. I knew about the movie, but I mean, I didn't really get into like the film noir and the thrillers until I got a little bit older in my life. And so actually, um, my first time seeing it was for this podcast. And the first time reading it was also for this podcast. That's how it goes sometimes. (laughs) But I saw like that it had an amazing cast and, um, you know, I was like, well, surely this movie will be amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I guess we'll get to that in <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. And I brought this up when we were talking about what films we should do next, as we do on this film strip pod. And I remembered studying this film for a lit and film class in college And this was one of my favorite films that we did. And I did read the book back then. I started reading it for this pod again, and I almost got totally through the book. So Jay and Ryan are actually a little bit ahead of me on that. But I have read the book once before. So so, so here we are. I want to thank Wild Card Weekend from the NFL and the fact that there were so many blowout games that allowed me to blow through that book in the weekend. Because if those had been any good, I would have put it down. But there were so many just completely lopsided games that I said, well, I'm just going to read this book. Jay sent a very cozy picture around. If anyone follows him, I think you posted it on social media. Yeah, it's on my, it's on my Insta page if you want to follow me. Of yeah, him uh, with his cozy stocking feet in front of a fire with his book and football on the television. Yeah, so, yeah. I think Tom Brady was, was whipping the hell out of the Eagles at the time. <laughs> so I had it Sounds on mute right. and, and was, uh, <laughs> was reading through some Ripley at that point. But uh, yep. yeah. Good deal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's th- this is one that, like I say, I think a lot of people have forgotten about. Like, it made a huge splash at the time. It, I mean, it's a rare duo feat of having all the critical acclaim that it did and making all the money it did. Because mm-hmm. you got to think about, like, in 1999, y'all, spending that kind of money on a drama, 40 million bucks, that was a lot of money. Studios putting that kind of money into that type of film is just not something that they don't really do it anymore in particular, but they really didn't do it a lot back then. And for it to get triple its gross back, that's darn impressive. And it's for a property. We should mention the Patricia Highsmith book was written in the fifties. So yeah. it had been optioned for years and had been made into several like versions of movies and things. I think John Malkovich was going to do a version of it at one time and he passed on directing it. And um, our director here, I mean, he's known for the English patient among many other things. His son's a star of, or one of the stars of the handmaid's tale. You've seen him. Uh, and so, I mean, like he, he really wanted to do this and, Matt Damon loves to tell the story that it's the only time in his career that he beat out Leonardo DiCaprio for anything. And it's because Leo turned it down um, because he, Leo wanted to do it, but then said no and passed on it. And uh, because he was kind of trying to get out of this realm of stuff or whatever. And then I think Scorsese hit him up for something too. That was another reason to, to let it go. And da- but Damon wanted to do it badly. And so he, he ended up getting it because he was trying to break out of the two roles he kept getting cast in which is either some version of will hunting rom-coms he didn't want to do at the time or some version of the school ties villain that he was and he didn't want to do that and honestly i could absolutely see leonardo dicaprio in this role and killing it but good for matt damon because i do feel like i mean as a highlight of this movie this movie essentially served as 
just a master class of depth that Matt Damon has as an actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you just see him transition from so many different characters in one movie as one character. So good on him. He was mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts. It's like watching somebody like Cary Grant or even Jimmy Stewart from back in the old days and the way that they could play so many different things at once, even in the and same the movie. And the vocal or even, work. Yeah. yeah, or even going back to the third man, Lindsay, that we did with Orson Welles and just watching him sort of transition through that movie. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Also a movie I studied in the same Lytton film class. <laughs> See, that, that, by the way, I'm sitting there going like, this is my retirement dream is to teach classes like that. Like that's what it I want to great. do. I mean, it was a summer class just to get a couple extra credits and it was a ton of fun. So yes. highly recommend if anyone ever gets the chance to do something like that, just do it. It's or a, a cinema class. That would yeah. be fun too. Yep. We also did the Godfather. So. See, mm. I, and I'll, I'll tell you now, folks, we've probably written half your papers for you in the archives of this podcast. So yeah. Just, you know, just go back and kids listen. with finished midterms. Yeah. Like, right <laughs> yes. now. You're welcome. Yes, you are welcome. So, yeah. Well, Lindsay, I think it's uh, it's appropriate for you to give us the plot summary for this one, since this was your your movie and movie idea. So tell us uh, what the talented Mr. Ripley's all about. While working at a bougie party as a pianist, Tom Ripley is approached by shipping magnate Herbert Greenleaf, who believes that Ripley attended Princeton with his son, Dickie. Greenleaf recruits Ripley to travel to Italy, all expenses paid, to persuade Dickie to return to the U.S. Ripley meets and befriends Dickie and his girlfriend, Marge Sherwood, claiming to be Dickie's former Princeton classmate. Ripley quickly begins to enjoy Dickie's extravagant lifestyle, a sexy chess game in the bathtub included, and becomes obsessed with him. Unfortunately for Tom, Dickie quickly tires of him and replaces him with socialite friend Freddie Miles, who does not hide his contempt for Ripley. Dickie's father, disappointed that Ripley was unable to persuade Dickie to return to the U.S., cuts off Ripley's travel funds. This causes Dickie to cancel future travel plans with Ripley, telling him that they should part ways. But Dickie does offer to take him on a final trip to San Remo. While on that trip, they argue aboard a small boat. A struggle ensues, and Ripley ends up killing Dickie with an oar. And after some necrophiliac snuggles, Tom takes Dickie's belongings and scuttles the boat. Tom convinces Marge that Dickie is moving to Rome and wants to be alone. Tom then heads to Rome himself and creates the illusion that Dickie is still alive by checking into one hotel as Dickie, who he has been continually mistaken for, and another as himself, fabricating an exchange of communication between the two. Through forgery, he is also able to draw on Dickie's allowance, which allows him to live lavishly. He runs into Meredith, an American socialite who he met when he first arrived in Italy, who knows him as Dickie. Then she invites him to attend an opera. He accepts, but his ruse is threatened when he runs into Marge and her friend Peter Smith Kingsley at the opera. So Ripley rushes Meredith out and then breaks it off with her to prevent himself from being exposed. Shortly after, Freddie shows up at Ripley's apartment looking for Dickie. When the landlady addresses Ripley as Dickie, Freddie realizes the fraud. Exposed, Ripley bludgeons Freddie to death and disposes of his body, which is found the very next day. He's questioned by police as Dickie. And to evade further questioning, Rick Ripley forges a suicide note in which Dickie claims responsibility for Freddie's death. Dickie's father then arrives in Italy with a private detective, Alvin McCarran. 
Marge, who is staying at Ripley's with Peter, discovers Dickie's rings and deduces what happens. As a presumably homicidal Tom Ripley tries to calm down a hysterical Marge, they are interrupted by Peter. They meet with Mr. Greenleaf the following day, and he quickly dismisses Marge's suspicions and requests to speak with Ripley privately. Then, Private Detective McCarran reveals to Ripley that the police are convinced that Dickie, who has a history of violence, murdered Freddie before killing himself. McCarran tells Ripley that to reward him for his loyalty to Dickie and to ensure his silence, Greenleaf intends to bequeath a portion of Dickie's trust fund to him. Free and clear of his crimes, Ripley boards the ship to Greece with his new lover, Peter. Ripley then bumps into Meredith on the same boat. He kisses her and promises to talk later. Ripley realizes that he has to kill Peter in order to protect his identity as Dickie to Meredith. And then back in the cabin, Tom laments to Peter that he will always be alone because of what he has done. He asks Peter to tell him good things about Tom Ripley and sobs as he strangles Peter to death. And end of movie. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that was a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on there's in this one, and that's on. funny because the book is less than 300 pages, and mm-hmm. like I say, it's it's a bit of a page turner. It's kind of a beach read, if you will. Like you can blow through it pretty yeah. fast. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I think I I say that because it's got all the beautiful settings and the and it's really yeah. photographed great in this movie. But even reading the book, like you get a sense, and I've never been to Italy, but you get a sense of like what that looks like and the Italian coastline and, and you know, all the stuff that they describe. But Patricia Highsmith has a real distinct prose, and she's great at describing scenery as well as she is in dialogue. And so I I was of course having seen the movie. I read the book before I rewatched the movie, but I was picturing it all in my head pretty vividly. And I don't know, it's, it's neat. Like I said, it makes it a real quick page turn. And once you get into it, um, you, I don't know, I found that you could just tear through it pretty quick. This movie, though, is a different experience. And Liz, <laughs> you and I were texting about this back and forth. And I think it was some version of this movie is really long. And I said, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. It's that second act that goes really long that Mm -hmm. really stretches out because you get so much setup in the opening here and we'll talk about but um they blow into so much stuff quickly but then it drags uh, in the middle no doubt before finally getting to this sort of almost perfunctory third act yeah and that was so going into the movie and the opening credits they blew through it so fast i was like this is the all the opening credits was pretty much like the first quarter to third of the book. They just yeah. you don't need any of that backstory, none of it. Which I personally feel like you kind of do, but then they dragged so much throughout the rest of the movie. They really could have just I don't know. I it could have been laid out a little differently, but I'm not a director making 140 million dollars (laughs) working with matt damon and jude law i'll I'll say this though and just just from the top before we get into the meat of the movie just casting wise i mean matt damon and we talked about it in the outset there what a what a showcase of what he could do to because he's really Mm -hmm. playing like four different people in this movie Mm -hmm. there's a real person which i think we only meet briefly at the beginning and at the very end and it's when it's shown in those sort of tile shots that anthony mcgale likes to do it's kind of showing the fractured part of this person and then there's him as dicky there's him as 
Peter's friend. There's him as Meredith's friend. There's, there's all these different people he's playing, and you get to see Matt Damon sort of stretch and do all that. And it's you know easy now to think like, oh yeah, it's just Matt Damon because that's what we've seen him do so many times. But we hadn't seen that yet, so it, it's minting it. But what a find in grabbing mm-hmm. Jude Law, like this unknown British actor to play this playboy American, and he just nails. It. I didn't know Jude Law was British until movies later, and I thought, oh. Wow. And I don't know if y'all, you are actors. So tell me this. What is it about British actors that can fake American accents so well? And the other way around, like it almost <laughs> never works. Like you hear Gwyneth Paltrow kind of try to do it in this one and she sucks at it because she's not that great of an actress. Sorry. Her mm-hmm. mother's much better, Blood Tanner. But, but she looks so much <laughs> like her too, which is kind of scary. But, but <laughs> like when Americans, like I've only ever seen one American actor fool me into thinking he was not American for years. It was James Marsters on Buffy. I did not know he was from California for years. I thought he was British. But th- what is it about British actors that allows them to fake the American accent so well? Because Jude Law nails it. I will tell you, this is my theory. Well, first, I should mention, this is the best American accent I've ever seen Jude Law do. Mm-hmm. True. So <laughs> I think he kind of let it slip, got a little lazy with it as he got more <laughs> well-known <laughs> because people really don't care about whether or not he's doing an accent right or yeah. not. They just care about whether or not they get to see that booty. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, but my theory is that British actors trying to do an American accent can easily model the Midwestern American accent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen British actors try to do a New York accent, and it is crash and burn for days. I saw Natalie Dormer do a New York accent, like a New York City accent, and it was Ooh. so bad. I mean, it was it was kitschy and it was adorable for what she was doing it and she was fantastic, but in the show, but it was not a good <laughs> accent. Yeah. So I think that it's easier for British people because they can mimic a Midwestern accent and there's no Midwestern version of a British accent. You have to pick a very specific region in the UK to mimic and most Americans don't pick a region they just kind of do what they think they need to do that's my take on it Ryan feel Um, free to chime in no so I'm gonna actually jump in on that because um some people say that I almost have a midwestern accent and it was because um my grandmother was midwestern I spent a good chunk with her and some people would actually come up to me and be like oh are you from the UK and I'm like no and it's because midwesterners almost have like a little bit of a lilt to their voice that Mm. it could almost come off as like slightly british and that's just my take on it um and i think that that's one of the reasons why you see like a lot of uh people from the uk grasp onto that accent a lot more because southern accents with british people are like probably like us being like i'm british i'm cockney no, it's, it's like someone trying to do when a British person tries to do a southern accent, it always sounds like foghorn leghorn or something. Yeah, it's yeah. terrible. <laughs> like it's yeah. not exactly. not well done. Yeah. yeah. And they do. And as you know, Jay, being from the South, each southern state has a very specific yes. yeah, a very specific dialect. <laughs> exactly. Yes. T- Tennessee is not Alabama, it's not Georgia, it's not definitely North not Florida, it's not yeah. the Carolinas either. Like, well, Texas Florida is really. just a New York accent, let's be honest. Well, I mean, it depends on what part of Florida you're in. If you're in northern Florida, there's As nobody from New York there. Like, northern the Florida, yeah, that Florida Georgia line, they get the Georgia effect there. That is true. <laughs> There's a lot of bleed over, but no, but yep. uh, but j- just from the outset, like the cast is, is it's neat again to see all this Hollywood 
you know, royalty, if you will, sort of mm-hmm. minted in a movie. Before together. they were really royalty. Yeah, mm-hmm. really before they were. I mean, let's be honest, Jude Law has a movie career because of this movie. Like mm-hmm. nobody knew who he was. And now he's, I mean, he's done so many other things and I've seen him in, I've seen him in good stuff and I've seen him in bad stuff too, but he almost always gives a pretty even performance most of the time, even if he's in like a not great movie. We mentioned Matt Damon's performance as an actor, but he also did a lot of work physically for this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He lost a significant amount of weight to play this role. Um, I mean, to the point where, at least I've heard, I don't, I, you know, I don't quote, I don't know how factual this is, but I have heard through the grapevine that he lost so much weight for this role. His doctors were concerned at his body fat percentage. Yeah. Something like 30, 35 pounds he lost. He's not a big guy either. So you start dropping pounds off of a guy like that. It's, Mm -hmm. you get worried, you know? And so, but he wanted to look more like Jude Law, who's who's a taller guy, but is kind of mm-hmm. felt and he's thin and fit. He uh, Jude Law talked about how he had to get in bulky shape to do this. He said because American schools play rougher sports than British schools do, mm-hmm. and he uh, said, you know, we play point. running sports. He said, you guys play physical sports, and yeah. so mm-hmm. it, uh, and he's not wrong. So uh, it's neat to watch them you know transform. But I love in the opening here how this is done. It's all it all starts with like the first few things we hear the Ripley character say tells you everything you need to know about him. And like you say, the first 30 or 40 pages of the book kind of set up who Ripley is, but they do that in shorthand here. And I actually think it was done well, all the, again, the shadows and how Tom is kind of coming in. He's this fractured person. And the first line we hear him say is like, I wish I could go back and erase it all and not borrow that jacket. He borrowed a friend who had a busted hands jacket, piano player who went to Princeton. So he could fill in for him, for his wife who's singing at this, this, you know, wedding or reception or with the bougie party, whatever the hell they're at, you know? <laughs> right. And and I'm sitting there laughing because having at one time or another been in a group that played like receptions and stuff like this, it's, it's neat to sort of feel like, like I, I was at one once that was, at the asphalt king of mississippi yes there is such a thing his youngest daughter's <laughs> wedding i played their reception once and y'all you talk about bougie it was seriously like Ooh. southern bougie the southern bougie is a but it was neat to kind of play yeah. in that world for a little bit like me and my my singing partner Lori talked about how like we were like broke college kids and we were out there hanging out with these you know millionaires and we're going like wow that was cool for like two hours we were we were <laughs> awesome and you kind of you kind of feel for tom in this place because he just so wants to be a part of all of it and it starts with the most innocent lie and like oh you must know our son because you went to princeton and he pointed his jacket and he's like yeah and he just goes with it but what you also realize is that tom also tells you when he introduces himself to dickie the first time that what do, what am i good at forgery telling lies and sounding like other people he tells you exactly what he is so you know he's been working on this for years and it's it's neat to pick up a grifter when they're already good at what they do right like that i don't it's just a neat idea like you think about him in something like oceans 11 where he's this young thief kind of making his way up right well here tom ripley is established as what he really is he's already a monster he just hasn't been unleashed yet (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely, definitely a con man. I I do want to talk about the opening credits, though, because it's such a big portion of the book that's kind of glossed over here. Mm -hmm. The 
the choppiness, Jay, I like how you put it, the choppiness of the, and I didn't think about that, of how the opening credits kind of came in with the, what did Brian call it? Brian called it a, um, like a middle school PowerPoint. Yes, yes. All the fade-ins, yes, all the line-ins, yes. Um, I knew what was going on. I felt like if you hadn't read the book, you would have absolutely no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that said, it was very noir, Jay, Jay, which I think is kind of... You're into that. Would you agree? You kind oh, of mentioned that, touched on that. Yeah, totally. Bit. I mean, I think I think that's how you introduce noir characters because and and Ryan, you mentioned being a fan of noir too. The the trick about noir is that everybody is fucked up in the story. <laughs> and it's and it's what part of broken you get them at is is sort mm-hmm. of where you take them from. And mm-hmm. the fact that we introduce Tom and all these uneven it, it, it's powerpoint but it's uneven lines so it's artistic powerpoint it's douchebag <laughs> if you will so it's little it's off like, kilter it's a little trapezoidal and then yeah. that's part of his yeah. face right we'll exactly. get to his but, eyebrow in a second right right but you just get these fractured pieces and that's that shorthand a way of telling you like you're never going to get the full person I'm just going to give you the pieces that you need to know that make you feel comfortable with me because that's what a grifter does, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The beginning was a little bit rushed. I will say from somebody who did read the book and somebody who went in only knowing the book and then watching the film immediately afterwards, I do wish that we had kind of seen just a little bit more of that that side of Tom, because if you're somebody who comes in and sees this, I think from a standpoint, you're just going to think, Oh, he's this very innocent individual. Um, He fell into this. Mm -hmm. And, but of course anyone who reads the book is going to know better to a certain standpoint. So when you do get to that part where he, where Dickie asks him, Oh, what are you good at? And he's like, forgeries, lying, all this. You're like, Oh, 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 okay. So I almost wish to a certain extent that, and I know this movie was long, but I kind of wish that we had almost gotten a very similar scene like we did in the book where um, Tom was doing the IRS scam. Yeah. Just so that we could see that little extra tidbit of being like, oh, there's there's something more to Tom than just, oh, he fell into this. Oh, he's learning jazz. Oh, he shines shoes and works in the bathroom of an opera house and things like that. And that's, but I also give credit to Matt Damon on this because he just comes off as so innocent and gullible at the beginning of this movie that you don't know the things that he's capable of doing later in this movie. I think um, that's the cool, the cool part of it too, though. You mentioned yeah. it in the book. He's running this scam where he's telling people they haven't paid their full tax bill mm-hmm. and that, Oh, they can call somebody, but he's got all the records right there. And at that point, n- nobody had Google to you know mm-hmm. do anything. There was no turbo tax. Right. So mm-hmm. you, you're just like, <laughs> okay, sure. So people would just mail him random checks and he never cashed them. He yeah. just sort of did it as a prank, but it's like, he's trying to see how much he can get away with. And they don't do that here. Instead, they tell us the shorthand of you watch him sort of transition from piece to piece to piece. And you watch him kind of work. The way Damon does, he does this cool thing in the bathroom scene where he's, you know, lint brushing those men off and taking their coins and all this kind of stuff. Cause you realize he's not just there going through the motions. He's studying those people mm-hmm. because if he ever gets in society, he, you watch him act later and he acts like those men did in the bathroom, sort of dismissive and just sort of there. And that's what you feel like you're watching this chameleon just 
and sponge just mm -hmm. soak up everything around him. And it, it's neat to see it's a performance thing though, because in the book, you know, Tom is a grifter. He, he wants mm -hmm. to, be, that's what he is. And in the movie, you're, you feel like, Oh, is he just sort of falling into this? But if you look behind it, this is what repeat viewing will give you is, Oh no, you're watching a mastermind at work here. And it's, mm -hmm. it's cool. And when, you know, when he gets the pitch from the father and then goes about, you know, studying up on Dickie, all the stuff he does, he's listening to jazz blindfolded and trying to pick out the tracks and all this. And I'm going, man, this guy is good. It's scared. Mm -hmm. He is a hard worker. And yes. that is what I got from those opening credits. Mm -hmm. And he was in the book too, but in the opening credits, it was just like, yeah, this is a guy I would hire, you know, like he, right. you tell him what to do and he will throw everything he's got into it. And he is really committed to the role that he is about to be playing. You know, I thought about a, a, a horror movie, uh, of course, uh, watching this. Um, <laughs> I thought about the stepfather. If you've ever seen that either. Yes. It's original I watched the original or, or the stepfathers. Yeah. Yes. There's that pivotal line, spoiler alert <laughs> for a really old movie uh, and even a really old remake where he goes, who am I here? And you realize how much hard work it is to be that deep of a liar. And I'm glad you said about hard work, Lindsay, because it made me think, I was like, you know, it's hard work to be that deep of a liar. And you got to put a lot of effort into that. And you have to be really smart to do it too, because you have to be smart enough to remember who you lied to, what lies you told to who, and what truths you told. Mm -hmm. and keep right. all of that you know separated well, and isn't that the motif of the jazz part of this movie i wanted to ask y'all about that because i don't remember that being a big part of the book i mean it was a side it's part, not a part of the book at all it, there's yeah. no and there's no mention of that really at all they mm -hmm. really pushed on the art standpoint from the from the piano to the yeah. saxophone the yeah. jazz to the um to church choir music. They really pushed the art aspect of this, but I kind of equivocate that to noir films in general. Like I expect there to be, it to be heavy on the music, on the art, on the architecture right. and things like that. So that, and, and the thing is, is that it didn't bother me all that much. Actually, it didn't bother me at all. I was like, oh wow, these scenes are beautiful. Yeah, I did. I liked, that is one thing that I like. And honestly, it, it's because of the format, right? So the book, in the book, Dickie is committed to painting, not playing saxophone and jazz. Right. But that makes sense for a book because you're reading. Mm -hmm. You can't hear the music. It's not as visceral when you're listening to jazz and you mm -hmm. actually can feel it coming through on the screen. And, you know, bonus, because Dickie was so into jazz, we got this great soundtrack of mm -hmm. all of this jazz music yes. and then all the classical music that Tom was really into. So it's and especially that is that's such an interesting point that I just am now processing in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Like th think about it like, that, like the whole point of jazz is improvisation, right? Yeah. But it, but it has this very like mm -hmm. precise classical underpinning. Like I'm a complete play by ear musician, but I understand the idea of riffing off of just sort of jamming and what's sure. there. And it, it's kind of like what always drew me to bands like Pink Floyd and stuff like that, because it, at their root, they were jam bands. You know, mm -hmm. and they could just run on a on a line into nowhere, it seemed like. And that's jazz, right? It's that you just 
you're really just following the drummer and, and you're just sort of teetering off into all these different directions. And that's what Dickie is as a person, like the real Dickie Greenleaf. He's not centered. He's not going to be grounded like his father. He's just going to do whatever he wants. He's going to follow his passion because jazz is a very passionate music, right? And you watch Tom try to do that. And it's, it's like trying to teach someone how to be improvisational, maybe not even improvisational, how to be spontaneous. Like, I think you can learn improv. You can't learn spontaneity unless it's just sort of in you, I don't think. You guys tell me if I'm wrong, but I I, I mean, it, it's funny to watch him grasp and grapple with that because at Dickie, it's his nature. For Tom, he's trying to be that. And it, you can see it, it sort of work, but that's where also there's cracks in the foundation. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. hard to especially with adults, I think. With kids, it's a little easier if you're working with like middle schoolers, high schoolers, it gets a little more difficult. But teaching someone to improv in mm. acting or in music, I think you have to be able to let something go, mainly shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we'll get into sexy kiss in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but but you have to be able to let to let that go and for adults it's much more difficult than it is if if you're a kid and for dicky he's he's never had to worry about that you know fed with a silver spoon he's been able to do and be whatever he wants his whole life and for tom ripley it hasn't quite been like that so he is a little more you know, he has to be a little more straight and narrow, a little more calculated. So it makes sense that he would gear more toward the classical and have a little bit more of a difficult time with jazz. There's discipline yeah. to classical, right? Like I, I quote yeah. Ralph Macchio's guitar teacher in, in Crossroads, which if you've never seen it, it's definitely worth a watch. But he, Ralph Macchio is sort of obsessed with being this blues player, but he's at Juilliard, right? So he screws up one of his recitals by doing this Robert Johnson riff at the end of one of his things. And his teachers on him like you know being classical the mozart requires discipline and all this stuff. and i'm like mm, being classical requires the kind of discipline that someone like dicky would never understand but someone like tom has to have right to keep up all those lies mm -hmm. so it's why he can morph into the jazz player even though it's not really natural to him and one one actual scene that really comes to mind is when he's with peter and he's playing the classical music and Peter comes behind him and plays the more like playful, upbeat tune. Yeah. And Tom says, I wish I could play that and just let go. Yeah. He says that. And that really describes him as a whole in that, like, I, uh, like you go back and you look at that scene. And of course we can like delve into the, the basement room that he talks about. But mm -hmm. for somebody who like listens to music to some extent, Describing it that way to people, I think, connects to them a little bit more. And I think that's why it was a really good decision to move into the musical component of art as opposed to art on a canvas. Right. Um, yeah. Like the book did. And yeah. then you see music as an annoyance when <laughs> Freddie is taking oh that God. key on the piano, which Ryan, I know is your favorite part of the movie. Oh, <laughs> I, he did that stupid key thing. And I was, I was telling Lindsay, I was like, I could not wait for Freddie to just get killed at that point. I was like, <laughs> stop hitting that key. Philip Seymour Hoffman has played so many, I want you to die characters in his <laughs> illustrious career. Rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I mean, I think but that's you see, but you that's see, well, when he yeah. comes on the screen, I wrote in the notes, like, 
Freddie's a real piece of work. And what I really meant to say is Philip Seymour Hoffman is a real piece of work because mm -hmm. you just see like the charisma coming off of him. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the director said that like when he cast Jude Law and Philip Seymour Hoffman, he just felt it just, just radiate off of them when they walked mm -hmm. in the room. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is not your classic, or I guess you'd say more modern classic Hollywood leading man. He's a big guy. He's kind of a, he's more of your classic Hollywood guy. He's more Orson Welles than he is you know, anything mm -hmm. else. And you see him walk in and he just, but he just eats the screen and it's, he's so good at it, but yes, he's so punchable at the same time. Like, yeah. yes, you must die horribly. But at the same time, I would have a beer with that guy. Right? Like, yeah, like Freddie's the most honest person in the movie. Like, yeah. He's, like, he's not he is the only in. honest person in the entire movie. Yeah, he's, a, he's an asshole through and through. And it's like, <laughs> yes. you see him on the screen. You're, okay, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. And there's no, there's no underlying, like, motives. There's no hidden agenda. He's just that guy yeah. throughout the entire film. And I think he did an amazing job because you don't really get a lot of that in the book version. I know I keep going back to the book version, but like, that's why we read it. Yeah. But like mm -hmm. Freddie's described as like being annoying and like, I didn't really think it portrayed all that well, that much in the book, mm -mm. but in the movie you're looking at him and you're like, okay, yeah, you would really annoy somebody very right. easily yeah like he comes off like the way that the old money passengers in titanic treat rose and her mother as mm. new, or a better yet the way they treat the kathy bates character the unsinkable molly brown which wasn't yeah. historically accurate at all because people oh. loved her but they just treat her like ooh, new money ooh, you know it's or i don't know maybe maybe the way um steelers fans treat everybody else you know like you know, it's your new money <laughs> you know are, J2 you, are, you, are you an anti-steelers person <laughs> no not necessarily because but I'm, I'm just saying like you did the royalty versus the more nouveau good like steelers <laughs> fans don't suffer bucks fans a whole lot of anything no. or Patriots fans and for good reason because they're awful but Freddie would be the Patriots Let's, I think that's what we're trying to say Freddie so, would be the Patriots <laughs> and there's the title of this Freddie would be the Patriots there's our tagline <laughs> yeah but, there no, we go but, but I, I love that we get all, all these rich characters we got to talk about Marge and Meredith because mm. there really are only yeah. two female characters I know mom is a story bit but she's not a character mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow is I always say an acquired taste as an actor and what she does. <laughs> and in the right thing, she works in the wrong thing. She's detrimental to things. That's just my personal opinion. Unlike her mother, Blythe Danner, who I think works in everything she's in and mm -hmm. is, is a tremendous actor. Gwyneth has a different air to her, but it, it almost works in this though, because you realize you're, watching the daughter of royalty sort of work out her own creativity and all this. So she's trying to be a writer and all this stuff. And I mean, yes, she's striking and she's gorgeous and all that stuff, but she's also, she plays put upon and you, you almost want to go like, girlfriend, you ain't ever worked a day in your life. Like what, what's your problem? <laughs> like that's, that's what I wanted to say. I was like, of all the unsympathetic characters in this poor Marge, I just feel like gets a, a bit of a short shrift. Y'all tell me if I'm being a misogynist's pig or not, but I, I just, I did not like her. I like Meredith. I did not like Marge. You know what? I like, I liked Marge more in the movie than I liked her in the book. Agreed. Mm. I will give her that. Um, but I, I mean, no, she's, 
yeah, that that was the big that was the big shift for me between movie and book was how much I liked Marge more in the movie. Mm-hmm. I remember, and I still think about this sometimes, being in elementary school, and Gwyneth Paltrow was like just kind of starting out. I couldn't. I must have been in middle school. Elementary school is way too young for that. Um, <laughs> and I remember one of the boys I went to school with. Because, you know, they're all talking about the hot actresses in Hollywood or whatever, you know, as you do. And one of them said, Gwyneth Paltrow either looks like a dog or she's hot as shit. (laughs) There's no in between. (laughs) And I still think about that. I am 36 and that's still. She's an ugly cry is the reason. I I can't disagree with you necessarily. Because there's scenes in this movie when you look at her and you're like striking old Hollywood. Yeah, you know? And then the there's other scenes that's like, did you shower last year? <laughs> you know? I mean, it, and it's the vacillation yeah. between that you just, it's a whiplash sometimes yeah. with her. You know, but I mean, no wonder the woman included. named a candle after mm-hmm. part of herself. I mean, come on. You know, I mean, you can kind of see <laughs> come it. Come on. I. I did. I have to agree with Lindsay. I didn't. I did like Marge more in the movie because there were just she. She was such. She a was dreamer. kinder. She was kinder. She was just such a dreamer in the book version. And like you're reading it, and you're like, "Come on, girl, catch, catch this." That is there the is one no, thing she she no she never right mind would think this. Yeah, like in the book, like she totally convinces herself that like, oh no, Dickie did really clean stuff. Where it's in the movie, and I love this change. And I don't know if it was Paltrow's idea or not, but I love that she was like, no, I know it was you, and nobody yeah. will listen to her because it's the 1950s, and she's a hysterical woman. And, and I was like, lady. you know, I kind of like that as a character change because it is better than the book. In the book, it's like yeah. she's so naive that it's annoying. Yeah. It's like I'm. I'm sorry. Like if you are thinking that your your missing boyfriend or whatever they were in the book in the movie they're dating or fiancés Beyonce. or whatever you want to call them, if you if he's missing and then his best friend quote unquote sh- shows up with his rings that he said he would never take off, the immediate thought isn't he must have committed suicide. No, you're like he stole these. From right. his dead corpse after necrophiliac snuggles, as you lovingly <laughs> right, put it. Right, right. We're, I mean, we're going to talk about all that. All to stay. And I, yeah. uh, very briefly on Meredith, because I think we're going to get to her in a minute. I almost felt like Meredith was the dreamer. Like she was the virgin. She was the book version of Marge. That's yeah, because she's created yeah. for this movie. She she does not exist yeah. in the book. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like, she's the dreamer. She's the one. She even says, she's like, oh, you know, you can't hang out with other people who don't have, uh, who don't have the same money as you and have a comfortable conversation with them. And I could right. totally see Marge in the book saying that. So I feel like they brought that aspect. And I'm a part of me is like, why we didn't need it to begin with. I don't, not that I don't love Kate Blanchett. I think she's an amazing actress, mm-hmm. but. Right. And again, talk about somebody nobody knew at the time. And now you think mm-hmm. back like, holy cow, she's this sort of nothing role, but she's great. And in now it. she's the, royalty. It, did you get a little bit of like the Gatsby women off of these two? Yes. yes. Absolutely. <laughs> when resounding, you, yes. I was like thinking about that. I was like, there, there's something about them that's like driving me mm-hmm. nuts. And the minute you said that, I was like, yes, absolutely. They're the Gatsby girls. Like, I feel like Patricia very- Highsmith really liked 
F. Scott Fitzgerald stuff. Like she writes mm-hmm. a lot like he did too. If you read the, the stuff, at least in the Ripley books. And I, I don't know. I just, I felt like we're, we're doing an homage to them or we're telling a side story about this two women again. I feel like, and the movie makes more of it that way in particular. I think Anthony Mahalo re- really digs that story and wanted to tell more about them. But I liked Meredith as this little, plot piece to throw in because she validates Tom's lying as Dickie, but she also traps him in it too at two different times. Mm-hmm. Like she almost yep. screws him up twice and he resorts to horrific murder. Both times he hangs out with her, you know, that's true. The things boys do for girls or the things right? boys and do but, for but let's, let's, <laughs> let's put it on the table here because, it, it, and I've just got to ask you because I know what my, my thoughts are, but mm. What's Tom's orientation or deal? Like, what, where where does he fall? Do you think you you want to take this one first? I mean, I, I yeah, absolutely. So it's very interesting because I won't lie when I without seeing the movie because I, I kind of read a little bit of the next Tom Ripley book and I know that he is spoiler alert. Sorry for anybody. Um, he's married to a woman by the name of Heloise. And so when I saw the trailer and I didn't know who Kate Blanchett's character was, I thought, oh, maybe they're introducing Heloise in this with the idea of potentially doing a sequel because, you know, they do that sometimes. And then I get into it and then it turns out she's somebody named Meredith. And I, I, a part of me is like, I don't know if I want to say that Tom potentially could be, I guess in this day and age would be considered pansexual whereas i don't think it it's a matter of he's he likes i think he likes men and women Mm -hmm. but you could also take it one step further because in the book he mentions that sex isn't something he's really interested in so you could also say that he could enjoy the company of men and women, but he could also be a romantic and it's not a sexual desire. It's more of a, he wants the companionship opposed to anything else. And, but that's my take. Yeah. What do you think, Lindsay? I, I'm kind of along the same lines there. I think that he, he is just very picky about the company that he chooses to enjoy in both men and women friends and lovers. I think that at least in the book, he's painted very clearly as someone who is certainly interested in men. He has no interest in women in the book, but also he doesn't have a ton of interest in men in the book either. So I think, and, and in the movie, I think they really push the, I think they really pushed the gay card a little harder than I was expecting mm-hmm. as a motivator for a lot of things that he did, which yeah. I wasn't, I thought, I thought, and again, sorry folks who didn't read the book, go out and check it out from your local library. But I really think that the book did a better job adding more depth to his character. In the movie, mm-hmm. it looked like he just, he just killed Dickie because it was a lover's quarrel. Mm -hmm. And in the book, it was far more premeditated. And he had, there was a lot more behind the feelings that led to that initial murder. And Um, and I'll admit my reading of it is, is totally colored by having read the book and and Mm -hmm. everything. But 
I think he's as asexual as the Daniel mm-hmm. Craig version of James Bond. Yep. It's a I tool. can agree with that. Absolutely. It's a tool yeah. that he uses to get where he's going. Yeah. And and in the book, I think it plays more like that. The movie, though, you're right, Lindsay. And and I have to think about when it was made, too. We're talking about something that's 23 years old at this point. Yeah. God. These were not topics we <laughs> talked about every day. And we just didn't. You know, you, we just, I mean, we had the don't ask, don't tell policy back then, for goodness sakes. So mm-hmm. it, it was a different time, you know, and this would have been avant-garde at the time and, and to really push an envelope. And you think about even when it was written in the 1950s, it was really the only art form you could talk about at all was in written form. It wasn't on television. It wasn't, I mean, for goodness sakes, Lucy and Ricky slept in separate beds, you mm-hmm, know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so it was, it wasn't something we talked about. And I think they do push it a little harder because I think that, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I don't want to guess as to what they were, but to, to get to the character point, I, I don't think Tom Ripley's anything. I think Tom Ripley is exactly what he tells us he is. He's a fucking forger and a liar. And <laughs> it's all he is. And Tom Ripley's number that one companion bitch. in life. Yes. There you go. Tom Ripley's <laughs> number one the, companion is, is himself. As much as he mm-hmm. wants someone else, his number one companion is himself. And that depresses him greatly. Yeah. And that's why you see you know, him react the way he does in, in such ways. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's neat to watch him interact with, with these two women because he, he acts around Marge and Meredith so similarly, but they react to him differently. Like Meredith totally plays along. Like you can tell she likes him. You know, she would like to get to know him or whatever. Marge is, oh, and, and maybe it's just Gwyneth Paltrow. And again, in one of her good acting moments here of realizing like, this guy is not like once she gets to know him, this guy is not someone to be trusted, you know, and maybe it's in that first scene where he does those impressions. And I know it's an overdub of James Rebhorn, but to hear the stories. And if you've ever heard Damon do impressions, he was doing James Rebhorn on the set and they dubbed it. And they said later, they should have just left it in with him doing it because he had him down cold. And like, it's one of the things he can do. And it's unnerving. I mean, naturally. Right. But it's, I don't know. It's, it's the only time you see, tom jazz riff if you will but you also realize like he has worked on that forever because a good forger like you watch him when he's doing the signatures later he's closing his eyes he's got the old signature turned upside down he's practicing it, and then he flips it over right and it's, i don't know it's, it's just pretty it's pretty impressive similarly and i do think we see a lot of that that kindness and playfulness at the beginning when marge is first meeting Tom, which is a little different in the book. It's like Marge immediately doesn't really trust him all that much. And maybe she doesn't trust him that much in the movie either, because there was that point when they're on their last trip to San Remo and Dickie was like, did you really go to Princeton? Marge and I had a bet. Neither of us thought you went to Princeton. Like we right. both thought you were lying. And so that's, that's the one moment where it's like, Oh, maybe Marge really didn't buy into him the whole time after all. Yeah. But there were a few like just nice moments where it's like, oh, yay, Marge and Tom are going to be friends. I mean, I know how it's going to end, but it's <laughs> nice to see it right now. Right. I mean, I will. Hmm. So like I could probably even take it a little bit like a, a little bit further on that one. You could maybe even go a step earlier than that because, yeah, they did like have a bet between the two of them but if she was a real friend I feel like she would have argued with Dickie about the fact that Tom was uninvited to Cortina 
she did have that <clears throat> awesome that's one of my and i even i <laughs> said this to brian when i was watching it that's my one of my favorite moments of the movie that is not in the book is marge's explanation of how dicky treats people that was fantastic on the boat and the when when his eyes are on you you feel like you're the only person in the whole world and then someone else new comes along and he just adds that shit and like right. you know well we see that we see that when, yeah exactly right after when right for tom is in italy and he sees you know dicky on the moped and he picks up the local girl that we find yeah. drowns mm-hmm. later and you realize like dicky's got you know the side piece you know too and mm-hmm. she's totally different than marge you know she's a brunette she's sassy whereas marge is much more quaint and you know polite and all that kind of stuff and it's i don't know it's just you realize like dicky is like the music he loves right he's jazz he's just mm-hmm. everywhere but he's also nowhere at the same time and that's the problem right like i want to ask y'all like the inciting incident is that his father wants him to come back and run the shipping business right mm-hmm. and i i got i like i did the math on it you know he offers tom basically a thousand bucks which would be about 10 grand today you mm-hmm. know not including expenses to go and do this he puts him basically on the non-sinkable titanic in first class to go <laughs> over there and do this mm-hmm. that's a pretty sweet gig i mean he, but he mm-hmm. obviously wants him to come back and i wanted to ask y'all like what what do you think about that is like the father I mean, going through some pretty extreme links to get your son back when you realize he won't listen to you, but he might listen to this random person that you met at a party. He's desperate at that point, because whether you go based off of the movie or the movie version or the book version, he's like at odds ends. And he's like, mm-hmm. I'll send anybody over at this point, because again, book version Tom admits that he doesn't really remember Dickie. He's like, we kind of knew, like we kind of met, but I wasn't really friends with him. And his dad was like, oh, that's fine. That means that he won't think that you have like a special agenda. You're unbiased, so you should go over. And so it's like, how desperate do you have to be at this point? I mean, because like his mom's got leukemia, but of course in both versions, they both state, oh, that's not the reason why he wants me to come home. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of up in the air for, I think, for the audience to kind of interpret why is the reason that um, he wants him to come home so badly? Because in the movie version, they kind of explained at the end why Dickie was sent to Europe in the first place, mm-hmm. which was right. not there in the book version. Right. I, I have a theory on this. Oh, oh. I, would you I, like I, to share? I might have yes. one too, but Jay, please share. I, I think James Redhorn. Mr. Greenleaf is also dying and he's not telling anyone. And I think he knows his, his wife's time is limited and his time is limited and he doesn't want the company to fall into public whatever, because we're talking about post-World War II shipping here. Mm -hmm. So he made a lot of money in the forties, y'all building warships. He's daddy Warbucks. And now he's making a lot of money catering to the 1% of the time and others too. Mm-hmm. Also from the sixties in even through the rough seventies and into the eighties. And now even today shipping kind of matters. I mean, you know, I don't know the Ben Mall canal. If you try to order anything from Amazon that comes from overseas recently, right? <laughs> like it sort of matters that you have a ship that works. This guy knows the long game. And I, I've 
I just came up with this, you're watching. I was like, I think he's dying too. And he doesn't want to tell anybody because in the time you wouldn't tell people that kind of shit. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have any other kids. So he doesn't want this thing to just fall into public, whatever. So he's desperate. Oh, I like your theory, Jay. It's way more inspired than mine is, which is just (laughs) that, (laughs) which is just that he's a one percenter and his other one percenter friends are saying, hey, what's your son doing these days? <laughs> Yours is way more realistic, by the way. Yours is way more realistic. It's more... Both. Also, there's an added layer of, I wonder, knowing Dickie's past and having a private investigator, if he knows what happened with yeah. the woman who committed suicide and he's trying... Well, you know what? That actually happened after Tom went to Italy, but I'm wondering if maybe that wasn't the first time it's happened. And he That's knows it. that yeah. he knows that Dickie is is problematic. That's an excellent point. I mean, it, and mm-hmm. on yeah. side. And, and we should say the side girlfriend, they she floats up dead, drowned at a, a festival they're at. And you're kind of led to believe the way the movie goes that she, you know, she might've been murdered or whatever. But the truth is in the book, it's much clearer. Dickie blows her off when she says she's pregnant. And again, there is no abortion in of any kind in Italy in the 1950s. So she does the only thing she knows how to do. She throws herself off of a building and drowns. And it's because he spurned her. You know, and I think you're on to something, Lindsay, that's probably not the first time that happened. Maybe that's where they invented that, the, the you know, that he beat the kid up in you know school or whatever coming mm-hmm. up and when he was in college. And that's why they think he's violent enough to have killed Freddie and all that. You know, the, the Philip Baker Hall lays that out at the end. And uh, I, maybe that's where that comes from. I, I think you're on to something, Lindsay, because this is what Northeastern rich fathers would be doing is where is your son in the company these days, Rutherford and all that. Whereas like in the South, it'd be like, which football player did you buy? I mean, really, you know, if you're from Texas, it's which team did you outfit? This is before NIL was around. So <laughs> it was still technically not okay to do, but I mean, really, that's you're. I think you're on to something. I think you're exactly right. It's why, why is my son, my birthright, not here taking over what I've built for him? And the only son, too. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. That's also a problem. Yeah, honestly, it's an interesting thing to get into. When we get into the bit, though, I think that when when the girl drowns is really when the movie starts to turn or whatever, because you start to see Dicky as less than just this playboy kind of mm-hmm. foolhardy character. It's like. He's dark in his own way too. And he that's kind of messed up and it makes him harder to root for. I don't know that you want to root for Tom to kill him with an oar later, but you sort of mm. get it in some way. Because the movie wants you to be on his side. Yeah. Mm. Dickie did at least show remorse and emotion. Mm. Which Tom did not really show until mm. I arguably the end of the movie, I think. Yeah, but, I think he loved well, people. Yeah, he, I, I think, think he loved he, that he had a companion yeah. that made him more fun. I think you hit on that rhyme where he t- the music part where he's like, he brings out the fun in me, you know, and uh, he knows he's got to kill him because he can't kill Meredith. She's with her family. She'll be missed on this boat. But this guy, nobody knows. Well, I think you could even take it a step further because 
I could totally picture Tom being like, oh, I waved at them. And I, I, no, I'm not Dickie. I just waved at them because I thought they remembered me from such and such. At the end of the day, which is really depressing because I actually really liked Peter as a character. Mm-hmm. And I have feelings about the fact that he died. Um, right. But at the end of the day, he picked money and wealth over any normal sense of true happiness that I think he would have gotten with Peter because Peter was the only one after the murder of Dickie who knew him as Tom. Everyone else knew him as Dickie. And so there was this genuine connection and, and Peter saw Tom at what he deemed to be a, a dark part where he takes him and supports him when he's being interviewed by the police and everything like that and offers to check up on him. So he he picks money over someone who genuinely could love him, mm-hmm. which I think kind of leans into what we were talking about earlier about Tom's sexuality and that Tom is Tom. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. going to do whatever Tom wants. And if somebody fits into that little piece that he needs at the time, it works. But then he'll just move on. So, Lindsay, why does he snuggle with Dickie's body? Necrophiliac snuggles, as you called it. Necrophiliac snuggles. <laughs> After he kills him with the oar. I'm curious to hear your theory on this. Okay. Well, first, I do just want to take a little sidestep to say I loved the makeup job when he sliced Dickie's yes. face with yes. the oar really and the slow work. pump of the blood coming oh, out. I don't know who did makeup for this movie, but it was I've done I've I've spot done spot on. I've done I horror films. I've done horror films. I've worked with some of the special effects artists from the Scream franchise. And I'm like, kudos because that was so well done. I genuinely was like, oh, oh God. It was beautiful. It was um, amazing. Nice. Back to your question, Jay. The, Sorry. The 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 necrophiliac snuggles in the boat at the end. I think Tom is genuinely grieving not potentially the loss of Dickie. I think more so he's grieving the life that he wanted and could have had if he and Dickie had stayed friends, which was never going to be possible. Mm-mm. Also, I think he realizes in that moment, I'm in a lot of fucking trouble and I don't know what to do about it. Also, it's cold. Keep in mind the time of year when that happened was right at the turn of the season, I think, when it's a little too cold to swim and they were both wet and bloody. Um, So I think also maybe there was a little bit of he was trying to warm up. I have an alternate theory to this. Please. The way he's laying next to him and some of his motions, and again, I'm I'm probably reading way too much into this, but it's almost like watching him sponge up the last bit of Dickie that he can down to when he takes the rings off to like, how can I become this person? I have to soak up the last bit of him that there is, and now I am him. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm going a little deep into it, but I just no, feel that's like good. you're fully into crazy town. Now you're at the Citadel I mean, of crazy like, town. Like, I, I just like look at Tom as this complete <laughs> psychopath. Right? Yeah. And if he is, then 
and, and and I'm reading that right, then everything's a new canvas. Everything's a new piece of paper. And he's just recopying the next thing he wants to be. And he, he, you know, he talked about the life he wanted with Dickie. He didn't want a life with Dickie. He wanted Dickie's life. Mm-hmm. So now he's got it. So how do I make sure I get it right? And that's when he starts doing his hair different and he starts wearing the clothes different. And I mean, it's all on that. It seems innocent. And I almost hate the way they play it in the, in the hotel that the hotel manager's like, aren't you Mr. Greenleaf? He should have just walked in and said like, I'm Dickie Greenleaf. Like if he yeah. had done that, it would have been more demonstrable. I think. I have, I have another crazy town thing. <laughs> this movie came out in 1999, right? Right. American Psycho with Christian Bale came out in 2000. So my question is, how much did Tom Ripley's character inform Christian Bale's character in American Psycho? We can ask Brett Easton Ellison on Twitter. He'd probably tell us in about 500,000 tweets. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a good point. I don't know why I just made the connection to those two, but I was like, oh, you know, I can You know, having having read both books, I've never connected them, but I kind of feel like we might have to make a return trip to uh said crazy town here and talk about american psycho at some point i dig it yeah the new podcast crazy town could be could Could be be. Um, uh, 320 something episodes in ryan this this podcast has been crazy town for a long time so i like it anybody been listening to us for 11 years knows can i get a brochure and a tour of the town that would be fantastic (laughs) go go to our letterbox page that's what i would say Um, but I do agree with you, Jay. Like, it would have probably been a better move for him to just walk in and say, oh, I'm Dickie Greenleaf. And because at that point, we've already seen the train scene in yeah. which Tom is kind of looking at himself being like, how much do I look like Dickie? Mm-hmm. And I think that that would have played a little bit better because, again, at that moment when he's like, no, I'm not. And he stops. It almost again comes off as like, oh, this is a fumble. This is a weird accident that I just so happened to have fallen into. Right. Um, because like, again, for people who need to read the book, they shove in how much Tom and Dickie look alike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I saw this originally, I when I saw like the trailer, I was like, I don't know if Matt Damon and Jude Law really look alike. Now when you told me that Leo was originally approached for this, I could that. totally see the two mm-hmm. of them playing off. But the way that Matt just turns into exuding that confidence that Dickie has it's just like you forget for a moment that there's these spatial differences and yada, yada, yada. And it comes off and you can be like, no, that's wow. That he really, I remember the moment when he walked into the hotel, when he was portraying himself as Dickie for the first time. And I, he did the side glance. And I went, wow, he really looks like Jude Law. Hair, that whole yes. montage of that hotel yes. setup. Was, it was beautifully yep. done. Bennett, you both have worked as actors on stage and you've worked where they're understudies or you've been the understudy, right? And the idea is you kind of want to make it your own thing, right? But you're trying mm-hmm. to do what the other person is. When I saw Miss Saigon on Broadway, I saw Jonathan Price's understudy play the engineer. And mm-hmm. years later, I got to see a video version of Price do it. And it was only then that I realized that the guy that did the understudy, he didn't look anything like Jonathan Price. But if you put the two just audio of the, the performances together, they're the same. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, that's that's an impressive bit of mimicry. 
And you're right. Matt Damon doesn't look anything like Jude Law. Maybe it's for the better that they ended up casting someone that didn't look like him because Leonardo DiCaprio and him could pass for each other in a, in a side glance. But Matt Damon is a mimic and is an impressionist by nature. It's what he does. So him to be able to do that, it's it's like, yeah, maybe Dickie was a little shorter and kind of wiry. Okay, sure. Maybe I misremembered that. Like, you don't see somebody for a few years. You forget things. You don't have Google. You don't have an iPhone where you can look at people's pictures There's anymore. There's no Facebook. Yeah. There's no Facebook, right? There's none of that shit. The hell, there's not even a MySpace at that point. So there's, <laughs> there's nothing. You know, there's barely yearbooks at that point. So nobody remembers. So, yeah, sure. Dickie's a little shorter than I remembered him. And, and I think you're right. He takes over that thing. But that's the the neat part about the way Damon's Ripley is versus the book one, where the book one, he's much more calculated. And like you say, like you, you realize he planned this murder on this boat moons before it actually happened. Where mm-hmm. this one, it just it's sort of an opportunity thing. But the neat thing about Damon's Ripley is that he capitalizes on those opportunities and just goes with it. He he yeah. is a riffer, whether he realizes it or not. And his calculatedness is what makes him so good at it. Mm-hmm. And they do like describe like if you type in Tom Ripley like in Google, they talk they say he's a con artist. But the one thing that they all say is that he's an he's an improvisational murderer. Right, he is. Oh, I like that. I mean, he really is. Because <laughs> think about when Freddie comes snooping around too. Freddie, Freddie's just like Marge. So she fun. sees through the bullshit. I mean, Freddie sees through the bullshit, yep. and he does the annoying piano tinkle and all of that stuff. And it's like you, you're rooting for his murder. And he gets killed with an ashtray in the book, but it's very similar to the way it is in the movie, that big bust where you realize like there's a look on Matt Damon's face that he gives when he realizes like, I might kill this motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and he's going to be a lot to dispose of, but <laughs> all right. And he just crosses the bridge and does it. And it's so brutal. You know, like Dickie's a brutal killer. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, Tom's a brutal killer. Yeah. Oh, I mean, at this point, is, like Jay, at that point in the movie, same see? thing. Yeah. I found yeah. it fascinating that that was the like more or less that was the scene that was almost identical to the book version. Yeah. yeah. Like they did, they did not really like jump too far That's off true. like they had in some of the other scenes. Um, which, and I think they did it, I think they did it like beautifully, but you're right. Like you could totally see when Tom is standing there, like conversing with him, you just see that look in his eyes and he's like, I could just, I could just kill him right now. Nobody would know any better, but he, he's like, I'll remain composed. And then it blows up in his face anyway, at the end of the day, but we all, we've all seen those people. That are just hanging by a thread. That's like head tilt. It's the <laughs> one t- thread. It's head tilt that really gives it and away. And maybe it's just a C note, <laughs> a high C on a piano, and that's it. That's what's going to break you. Yeah. But I mean, and you, I mean, and Ryan has already expressed how annoying that was, but man, it I was do like just grating. I do like, was that, did Freddie interrupt his his like Christmas present opening his Christmas present to himself. That was after I that. Think so. It was after, and he was playing on the piano. Right. He was like really in depth into his playing and he looked really happy. Like he had just gotten this new sheet music. Like anybody who's like, 
I think in general in arts, he had that look on his face where he's like literally a kid at Christmas. Mm -hmm. He's enjoying his time. And then he hears the knock on the door and it's just like the music stops literally. And you just know that something is going to happen. And then it pans to his slippers, which is Freddie's view when he opens the door. And Mm. that's kind of Freddie's first clue of like, hmm. Well, yeah, it, it also tells you Freddie is always looking down on yeah. Tom. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, he's judging yeah. him from the feet up. He's not yeah. looking at him eye to eye because they're not the same. They're not in the same league. You're not our friend. And, you know, you, I think we've all met people like that that, that treat you like that. And you want to bash him over the head with an ashtray or a bust of, you know, Shakespearean actors or whatever that is. And, <laughs> But you don't because you know, we're not psychos necessarily. But right. Freddy's the one kill in both the book and the movie where in some way you sort of feel like Tom is justified because this guy is such a <laughs> yep. fucking asshole that he deserves it. But on the other hand, and you've pointed this out, Lindsay, Freddy is the only person who doesn't lie in this whole story. He's the only real one. And... I have to say, and honestly, I was, and this is this is where watching a movie with someone with zero experience mm-hmm. of the book or movie is super right. helpful because they bring a totally different perspective. I was watching this movie and I was like, oh, this guy is such a douche. Ugh, I can't, oh, he's just so gross and blah. He's just a big blob on, you know, which is how he's described in the book and how he's kind of meant to look in the movie. And Brian goes, I mean, he's not wrong, though. Like, think about it. Tom's peeping. He's a peeping Tom. He's watching Freddie's friend have sex with his girlfriend. That's Mm -hmm. weird, right? And also, like, he is mooching. He's taking Dickie's dad's money to, like, have this gallivanting trip through Italy, like, Freddie's just calling a spade a spade at that point. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, you're not right. You're absolutely. That's true. I never really thought about it that way. And Freddie is really just like, I mean, he's still a douche. Don't get me wrong. He's like, he's just like the worst. But he's also kind of looking out for Dickie on a certain level. You know, I think he, I think as, as, and we keep, using the term one percenter, but as someone who has a significant amount of money and who's come from a significant amount of money, I cannot relate. I did not, but I have friends who did. And there are, I mean, I think there's like a certain level of, there's always someone who's going to want to take advantage of you and your money. And you always kind of have to be on guard about that. And Dickie clearly isn't, but Freddie is because he's been in that life for so long and he's, he knows what to look out for, and he's just kind of trying to warn Dickie, I think, like, at a certain point. Again, it's like Gatsby's rich friends who yeah. keep mm-hmm. telling him, stop fooling around with these townies because mm-hmm. you're going to get tripped because you're new money for my friend and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and, I, I mean, there's some, uh, there's a lot of subtext in all of that, and we could, we could spend two days talking about it. But I look, and I credit so much of it to Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. who's yeah. in about six minutes of this movie and portrays about 80 pages worth of greatness in just a few bits. Like, you see this and you go, like, no wonder this guy had such an interesting career because, oh, my gosh, like you just see him and you just see it just come off him. There's just people that – 
I, I'm as someone who's not an actor, I really get jazzed by watching people who can just do that. They just come on and they're just whoever they're supposed to be and they just as, eat it up. Yeah. And I, I think it's safe to say for both of us, Ryan, that as actors, it's still equally as great to watch another. I, I can only imagine it's greatly charged by somebody do doing things. that. Yeah. yeah. It takes somebody with a lot of confidence. Like, I mean, I've never personally played a character like that. Like, where it's just you're genuinely a bully and a and an asshole oh, altogether. But, but like, yeah. you have to take a you have to take a lot of confidence to like show that on stage or on screen, because like I would totally be and may, again maybe if I run into that role it won't be the same. But I would probably be immediately afterwards like I am so sorry, and it would <laughs> right? show. In my eyes, but Philip, but like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think is, may he rest in peace, is an incredibly talented actor. And I think it really showed with this. Um, I'm going to side glance. I, I have to giggle a little bit. Tom is a peeping Tom. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> right? right? He kind of is. Isn't that yeah. great? <laughs> Why? Then my question is, how did, how did Freddie not make that into a joke? He kind of did. He said, how's the peeping? This guy's a grifter, right? So <laughs> yeah. as as part of that, he's got to be a constant voyeur. Everywhere he goes, he's soaking mm -hmm. up something from something around him so that he can play it off. He's an old, he's the ultimate actor in some ways mm -hmm. because he's constantly borrowing from this, that, or the other to be whatever he needs to be in the moment to get that next door open. Mm -hmm. You know, or at least that's how he thinks, whether that is real or not, you know, again could talk days about but you could write college papers on it kids but uh but i mean really that's uh, there's an assignment for some, if, if some <laughs> faculty is listening there's your assignment uh but i mean really i mean that's that's what you get that's what, and that's why it's so neat to watch him in the later era with the cops and with mr greenleaf even how he completely snows them and he tries to do it with marge too and again to to gwyneth paltrow's character's credit in this one she never buys it you know she just doesn't react in a way that gets anybody to listen to her which is not fair but it, it just is what it is when you look at it in context and time but he completely blows these people over with like the worst fucking lies ever and it's amazing how and you can almost see it in his face like what do these people believe in this bullshit like <laughs> I'm, in protective, I'm in protective custody yeah what Oh, you actually bought that? All right, fine. Let's keep this going. <laughs> right? How am I getting away with this? <laughs> you can. It's true. You can see the shock on his face when it happens. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to prison for the rest of my life. This is, okay, yeah, let's just roll with it. Jazz time. Let's go. <laughs> right. My version oh, of God. jazz on three, which is not how <laughs> jazz works, but in Tom's head, that's how it works. Right, so. let him let him dream jay let him dream right, right. An, but i mean yeah organized jazz organized jazz boy those, those are words that do not belong jazz. together right there that's an oxymoron <laughs> right there if i've ever like heard it. focused pink floyd records no they don't exist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i love the floyd don't get me wrong but they mean yeah, i love that's, the floyd that's what they mean. So. but i mean really right, like, I mean, but that's the thing is you're you're watching the ultimate facsimile come to life in this movie and that's the point right it's like it's not the original but it's close enough that the average bear is just gonna let it fly and anybody that calls it out either gets murdered horrifically 
or nobody <laughs> pays attention to, right? Because of society and circumstance. And that's how a character like Tom Ripley gets along. And that's why the ending is what's so sad and tragic is you, what you, what you see. And it's much clearer in the book is that Tom realizes I'm going to have to be alone forever. Not because I'm a criminal on the run, but because I can't ever really let anyone get to know the real me because even if they would accept it, I couldn't keep the facade up. I actually have a question for both of you regarding that final murder that we see in the movie. There may have been many murders after that, but the final murder we see in the movie. So Freddie's murder and Dickie's murder are both, we see the actual murder. We see him bludgeon them. Mm-hmm. But the final the final murder is not only not seen, he's also not bludgeoned to death. It's an overlay of, you know, that conversation and then you see Tom's reaction in his own cabin. So why why that choice? Why the difference between those murders? My thought is with the Peter murder, he obviously throws him overboard. You know, because it's a steam liner. It's easy to do. He could say he got drunk and fell overboard. Nobody's going to miss him. And it also doesn't mess up where he is. There's no blood to clean up. There's no mess. And I think he killed Dickie in a fit of passion. He killed Freddie in a fit of rage. And it made a mess. He's killing Peter in his own twisted way in a way of mercy. So he doesn't want to mess him up. He just wants to end him so that he can peacefully send him out. That's my thinking on it. Yeah, I could, I could definitely agree with that because yes, Dickie was a crime of Dickie was a crime of passion, and Freddie was all like it was slightly calculated to a certain extent, but it was because he just did not like this person and he wanted him gone. Whereas Peter, he definitely cared for him. And because he's laying on him and you hear Peter say, Tom is crushing me, Tom is crushing me. There's this almost sense of intimacy because Mm -hmm. he's got to get like, we don't see it, but you really got to get in there to like strangle this person to death. So there's, there is this sense of intimacy, which is almost hypocritical when you really think about it, because both Dickie and Freddie died almost instantly. Whereas with strangling somebody, it's more prolonged. So you could say that it's almost Tom's way of holding on to him a little bit harder, but at the same time, he's making Peter suffer even more. So it's, it's an interesting, but I think that that's kind of Tom as a whole is he's almost contradictory. He Mm -hmm. wants intimacy. He wants love. He wants friendship, but he at the same time wants money and comfort and he will pick that over anything else. So it's, it's, it kind of, that final murder does kind of describe Tom in the way. And it's also his final, like, at least at the end, it's that final piece that's just like, created i think that almost final shatter for tom like it does in the credit scenes where you see him breaking up again whereas in the beginning you see him coming together right so i got deep yeah no that was deep my my theory was that 
Peter was potentially the first person that Tom has ever actually loved, which mm-hmm. is why he murdered him differently than the other two people, which were, as you both have said, acts of passion. Though, Jay, I, I like your take. You're right. It, it's it's a very clean way to murder someone. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, but Ryan's right, though. It's going to yeah. take a long time. So that whole bit of I can hang on to him for just mm-hmm. a little bit longer is, and I mean, we hear that in the voiceover. Mm-hmm. Jack Davenport does a great job of, of you're hurting me, you know, and all that. I mean, and I don't know this personally, but just again, I've listened to a lot of True Crime Pocket. You strangle somebody, that takes a long time to do. That's mm-hmm. not a quick death. That is a long way to kill somebody. And you and, have to really feel them struggling while you do it. And yeah. Tom is still. I a, think I don't have experience with this for the record, guys. <laughs> like, and Tom is yeah. still like by. I mean, like he's kind of bulked up at this point, but he's mm-hmm. a lot smaller than Peter, so That's that true. takes a lot of weight and muscle and strength mm-hmm. in order to. Again, all of us who have watched crime videos and listened to crime podcasts, this is really coming into play. Mm-hmm. Right. So. I, I just want to thank Justin and Aaron from Generation Y for teaching me all of this about strength. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and also Kelly from True Crime RL. But I mean, really, that's, that's, the, but that, the, I think we're all, all three of us are hitting on the right beats and it can, it can be all of those things. And that's the cool part of this character. And, you know, we talked about from the outset, this movie drags and it does in the middle, but when it flies, it flies. Mm-hmm. And, it almost goes too fast in some moments, but I think that's on purpose to, to give us this sense of the rashness of Tom's decisions. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we end the movie with the same kind of douchebaggery PowerPoint that we, <laughs> we start the, the movie with. Douchebaggery PowerPoint. I think that's in, uh, I think douchebaggery PowerPoint is one of the options, the themes that you can actually pick when picking up PowerPoint. Pay I think that's an indie band. Douchebaggery <laughs> PowerPoint. I gotta look that up. Pretty sure I got a pitchfork email like a, like about a, that right now. Exactly. rock band from. Uh, South Jersey. That's yeah. They they play before the leg warmers and things like that. Gonzo's nose. That's, uh, yes. that's a good one. Too. Gonzo's there is actually sh- seriously shout out to Gonzo's nose. If any of you listen to this podcast, which probably you don't, you're a great '80s cover band. <laughs> they probably Props. open up for the Velcro Pygmies, also. A good cover band. So, from from my neck of the woods, but yeah. I get really nervous when I type in douchebaggery PowerPoint and then it finishes it with douchebaggery PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I see. So uh, we're not the only ones that know. So, so it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Project PowerPoint on douchebaggery and debacle. I found it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move into our final thoughts and popcorn ratings. Ryan, as the newest addition to Filmstrip, I'm going to throw it to you for your final thoughts and popcorn rating on this movie. All right. Um, so I honestly think that you can, you can, it is a longer movie, but I think you can enjoy this, whether you've read the book or not. If you've read the book, I think you can still like see that the movie is honoring the book as a whole. You can appreciate its adaptation considering that this book was written in the fifties and they did it at a much later time. So they did adapt it, I think, to the time period. Um, so but for me, it's also at the same time, it's like there were some things that were a little pushed, some things that were touch rushed. Um, I'm going to give this a good medium popcorn. 
standard butter, medium. butter, but just the salt on the top, not all the way throughout. It's like it's good, and then you want more, and all you get is butter and popcorn. So that's my standard on that. All right, I like it. Jay, I I can't disagree with what Ryan says in terms of rating. I think this is a medium popcorn, but it's the good kind of medium popcorn. It's a great rainy, lazy afternoon, weekend kind of movie. You know, you put it on, you may doze for about 20 minutes in the middle, but it's okay because <laughs> you're going to wake up when Freddie starts tinkling those keys and go, what the hell is that noise? And you're going to get right back into it. And like I said, when this movie drags, it it definitely drags, but it's picked up by its performers and it's it, the way it's shot again, too. This movie is gorgeous and the scenery in it, the music is amazing it's a piece of art in and of itself and it, but because it drags a little bit and it also plays too much with trying to make Tom the sympathetic character, whereas in the book, he's very sinister and you can kind of go along with that better, I think. And I think that could have translated well into a movie, but you know, whatever they made the choice they made. So it's medium popcorn, good butter, good solid all the way throughout. But I'd say the book's a large uh, because if for nothing more, it's a fast read. It's fun. And you walk away with a different experience. I think it's rare to find a book where you get the same story, but you can have a different experience with it than you can in the, in the movie side. So I would give the book a large, but uh, you know, it's not book strip, it's film strip. So the movie is, is a vegan popcorn. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think I'm with both of you guys on the medium popcorn rating. Also uh, a fan of the large book rating, Jay. I, I think I love your your assessment, Jay, of, yeah, if it's a lazy day, if if certain things are legal in your state, highly recommend <laughs> doing something like that prior to watching the movie. <laughs> it's a good movie for it. <laughs> um, keep, if it's legal in your state, I cannot stress that enough. <laughs> but <laughs> we're not in the business of, you know, peddling anything else on this uh podcast i can't believe but, i'm in the tobacco state and the two neighboring states this is legal in, but it's not in mine so anyway, go ahead. i'm sorry jay <laughs> <laughs> yay virginia um, <laughs> that's the only time anybody's ever said that <laughs> wait i'm from west virginia yeah. is it legal in west virginia oh yeah oh yay west virginia too <laughs> okay now i feel real bad Holy cow. Also, Jay, it's legal in D.C. and Maryland. So, you know, it's all, it's in all our neighborhoods. I'm from all the wrong places. The tri-state area. There you go. Sorry, Ryan. Sharpening Um, resume as Lindsay gets her rating. (laughs) No, but it is, it is a nice movie to relax, nap, you do you type of thing. I think, too, one of my fondest memories of this movie is that I watched it very close to actually traveling to Italy. Mm. So because of the setting of the movie, I would highly recommend if you plan on traveling to Europe in any capacity in the near future, it is a good watch just because the setting is gorgeous. Uh, Pro tip though, the cafe at the bottom of the Spanish steps is a lie that does not exist. So don't go looking for it. It may have existed in the 50s. It does not exist now. I got a really upsetting text from a friend who went to see it because they also loved the movie and they were very upset to find that that was not actually a thing. So don't go looking for it. But 
I would give it I would give it a medium. It wasn't as good as I remembered it, but it was still it was still a solid movie with an all-star cast and how many movies can you watch with so many actors really getting their feet off the ground in one solid take. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow the show's social media at FilmStripPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. There you will find announcements about upcoming shows and a link to our letterbox page, which contains our entire list of reviews. Go to filmstrippodcast.com to link to our anchor.fm distribution site where you can find your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. Please share the show. And if you can, leave us a positive review. It does help other people find the podcast. For Ryan and Jay, I'm Lindsay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.